0: I'm John Ellis.
1: And I'm Rebecca Darst.
0: From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast.
1: Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life. A world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology.
0: And sometimes we talk politics, which we will today. Today we have three news items, and then after the break, an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Brandon Newell.
1: First, Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon sent out his annual letter to shareholders, and it says fintech and big tech are here big time.
0: Then we'll discuss a Thomas Edsel piece in The New York Times that looks at demographic changes in the electorate and specifically addresses the perception of many white voters that they are on their way to minority status.
1: And lastly, Peter Thiel rails against Bitcoin, China and TikTok.
0: After the break. We'll have an interview with Lieutenant Colonel Brandon Newell, director of the Naval X SoCal Tech Bridge, about the future of 5G.
1: And as usual, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech.
0: All right, let's get to the news items. First, in our financialization of everything storyline, Jamie Dimon warns that fintech's challenge to traditional banking needs to be taken seriously quote, banks have enormous competitive threats from virtually every angle, Mr. Diamond wrote in his long but informative letter to shareholders. Rebecca, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. He acknowledged what many have predicted for years, if not decades, which is that computer programmers would completely take over the world of finance, completely poach it and take it for their own. And whether you think that uh, traditional banking and financial services has been slow to respond, I don't know, but he's certainly acknowledged that it is uh, that fintech has been has been quick to win market share by simply being more nimble than traditional banks, which are heavily regulated and often hamstrung by bureaucratic processes and stagnant corporate cultures. Right. He did devote a great deal of attention to. The fact that U.S. banks have become much smaller relative to the U.S. financial market, as well as to the size of most shadow banks, while payment and fintech companies, as well as big tech overall, have grown much larger and that the current regulatory regime does not reflect that shift in dynamic, he lists Uh, 10 or 11 areas where banks are extensively regulated here in the U.S., whereas tech firms simply are not. I mean, he mentions that banks have higher capital requirements. They have liquidity requirements. They have to buy FDIC insurance. Whereas, you know, just to give you a few examples, I mean, fintech or non-bank actors have lower capital requirements. They they have no liquidity requirements. They are not required to buy FDIC insurance uh, at all. They don't have the same kind of know-your-client anti-money laundering provisions that U.S. banks are held to. So, I mean, he makes a number of of very salient points. I think my question in reading it was whether he's calling for more regulation of tech or less regulation of banks.
0: Probably the latter, don't you think?
1: (laughs) The latter, yeah, right. There are a couple of risks that he's highlighting here, right? You know, one is the competitive risk posed to big banks. But then there's systemic risk caused by the fact that so many of these major players who are moving into financial services uh, away from traditional big tech uh, Tech-enabled applications are not regulated in the same way, and that could potentially pose a systemic risk to the broader U.S. economy.
0: Yeah, that's a real risk,
1: right? It is. I mean, we've seen you know tech-powered financial volatility multiple times in recent years. I mean, you see you see flash crashes that can take out a market maker. You see, I mean, even just in the in the past you know few months. I mean, you've seen what happens when online traders can you know, blow up their own accounts. I mean. What what are the exposures? Who's on the other end of some of those trades? I mean, that's you don't get a lot of visibility to that when you're dealing with tech companies that a, are not regulated. Maybe have a kind of uh, you know have a startup mentality. <laughs> would you put your I mean, would you put your four hundred one k in the hands of a of a startup run by you know twenty two year old Mark in a hoodie? I don't know. <laughs> I, I would not. I would not be inclined to. But you know, I'm just not uh, I'm just not with it. Maybe I don't know.
0: All right, let's uh, let's move on.
1: Yes, okay. Let's dive into the electoral politics basket for our next news item. According to census projections, the U.S. will become majority minority by the year 2045. Thomas Edsel writes for The New York Times that in a diversifying America, Biden and the Democrats have a tough balancing act on their hands. They're attempting to, quote, target generous programs to racial and ethnic minorities, end quote, without triggering a, quote, reactionary backlash, end quote, from whites that feel increasingly marginalized.
0: I think if you look back over the last, you know, 65 years of American politics, you have three big Republican shifts, if you will. There was a political strategist named Kevin Phillips.
1: The Republican strategist, yes, right?
0: He wrote a book called The Emerging Republican Majority. And the hinge from a Democratic majority to a Republican majority was race. In politics, it's not the action, it's the reaction. The reaction to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and the package of civil rights legislation that he was able to get passed created a backlash, a huge backlash that led to Nixon's election and eventually led to Ronald Reagan's landslide victories in 1980 and 1984. Um, Since then, race has been a central fact of American politics and has driven much of the, quote, cultural fault line. Then you get to the election of Obama in 2008, 2012. Race is boiling underneath, but it's not part of mainstream Mm -hmm. media coverage. But race came back into play big time in 2016, less on a black-white than on the immigration issue, uh, which Mm -hmm. Trump very successfully exploited. And that has led to the current situation, which is that the Republicans command about I would say 45% of the electorate, Democrats, probably 47 or something like that, but it's very evenly split. And so the Republicans are not going to get to 50 unless they turn out every single last one of their voters. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: putting the fear that whites will be a demographic minority at some point in the near future That has proven to be a powerful message, as we saw in the Trump campaign in 2020, 76 Mm -hmm. million votes. It was in some ways overtly racist, but in other ways it was cultural, that Mm -hmm. your country basically was being taken away from you, and if you didn't stop it, the process would be irreversible. And the perception amongst a large proportion of the Republican base, if you will, is that the country is demographically getting away from them. Whether Mm -hmm. this is going to be successful for the Republicans in the long run, I don't think so. But Mm -hmm. in the near term, it will probably at least keep them competitive and may help them regain the House and the Senate next year.
1: Well, so it sounds like the Republican Party is strongly incentivized to double down on this strategy. I don't
0: don't think they have another strategy. (laughs) The place I think the Republicans are going to eventually land is Mm -hmm. nationalist versus globalist, right? That, I think, is a more inclusive message, less off-putting for minority Mm -hmm. voters, especially Asian and Hispanic voters. And I think the successful Republican presidential candidate in 2024, I think, Mm -hmm. is going to position the party as the party of the nationalists versus, you know, the Jamie Diamonds of the world, basically.
1: It's funny. You talk about, uh, you know, this political model of the action and the reaction, but then there's the reaction to that and the reaction to that. It's like you're constantly reaching this kind of... uh, Nash equilibrium of political outcomes, I think. And it's uh I guess time is gonna time is gonna tell where this goes. Yeah,
0: time will tell.
1: Okay, John. So for our last news item today, we'll look at the world in disarray, according to tech investor Peter Thiel. During a talk at the Richard Nixon Foundation this week, Thiel warned the US needs to take cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin more seriously. Let's listen.
2: Even though I'm sort of a pro crypto, pro bitcoin. Maximalist person, I I do wonder whether at this point Bitcoin is also uh, should also be thought in part of as a Chinese uh, financial weapon against the U.S.
1: John, in the list of threats from China, where do you rank Bitcoin?
0: I don't rank Bitcoin as as a serious threat yet, but you know their goal obviously is to replace the dollar as the world's currency, mm-hmm. and they will devote extraordinary energy and resources toward that end.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Wolfgang Munchau is the founder and lead writer for a newsletter called Euro Intelligence. He had a very good point, and I'll read what he said. Even after 20 years, the euro area is an incomplete project. Mm -hmm. It is likely to remain incomplete for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. During the sovereign debt crisis, there was a lot of talk about parallel currencies, like Italy's minibots but these never saw the light of day. But that does not change the fact that the euro remains vulnerable to the emergence of other forms of parallel currency. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You cannot pay your taxes in Bitcoin, but if Bitcoin becomes the currency of choice in the digital economy, Mm -hmm. the implications for the euro and the cohesion of the EU would be potentially troublesome. That's a world into which monetary policy cannot reach. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. I think that the immediate institution, if you will, that is threatened by Bitcoin is not the U.S., it's the EU.
1: That's an interesting point. And it reminds me of, how you know, when you talk to Bitcoin adherents, you will hear an argument that is often brought up is that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, but neither does any fiat currency. It only has value because authorities say that it has value and it's a completely arbitrary measure. But what case does Peter Thiel make for China's use of Bitcoin as a geopolitical weapon against the U.S.
0: You don't take down something like the U.S. dollar, you know, all at once, right? You chip Mm -hmm. away at it. And so the Chinese have... Introduced a digital currency, which they hope will be used by other countries in Asia and will be adopted again and again and eventually be competitive with the dollar in that region of the world. Another weapon would be to get behind Bitcoin mm-hmm. and try to push as much of the digital economy into virtual cur- or cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. thus further undermining the US dollar. I mean, I don't think Theo's wrong. I think it's just. Uh, there's the sort of the faster filer thesis which is that everything happens so quickly that you've forgotten about it the next day everybody is sort of extrapolating what Bitcoin means for fiat currencies that's a story that's going to play out over a relatively long period of time and you know if, if you're the Chinese you say we're going to do digital currency to the degree that we can support Bitcoin and that undermines the US dollar Good.
1: And that's a wrap on our news items for today.
0: But we still have your conversation with the director of the SoCal Tech Bridge.
1: That's right. The SoCal Tech Bridge is the U.S. military's very own Silicon Valley. I talked to Lieutenant Colonel Brandon Newell, its director, about 5G, global alliances, and more. So we're going to take a quick break and then hear my conversation with Brandon. So next generation wireless tech applications, 5G, it's getting a lot of hype as the transformational technology of our time. What our listeners may not know is that a lot of the applications around 5G are being incubated within the U.S. military establishment. Here to talk about U.S. defense innovation in 5G, I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Brandon Newell of the U.S. Marine Corps. He is director of the Naval X SoCal Tech Bridge, which leverages the region's installations, industry, and research for mutually beneficial opportunities between the U.S. Department of Defense and private businesses. Lieutenant Colonel Newell, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Rebecca, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about what we're doing at the Naval X SoCal Tech Bridge.
1: Let's talk about the history of, of TechBridge. I don't know if people know that TechBridge existed. What can you tell us about its history that's not classified?
2: So Naval X is the innovation arm of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisitions out of the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. And one of the programs is called TechBridges. And what they did is they looked across the entire ecosystem of the Navy and the entire nation, and they found pockets of innovation that were doing things differently really disrupting Mm -hmm. the business model and showing new ways to partner with industry and other parties to really unlock the future. Mm -hmm. And so I had been out here under the Marine Corps leading a program called Installation Next, which is smart cities for bases. And so I was asked to come on and lead as a director, the SoCal Tech Bridge. And so we brought our mature efforts in 5G And security capabilities and energy resilience. We brought all that to the tech bridge because it was exactly what they were looking for, which is where are these pockets of innovation, where are these healthy ecosystems with non-traditional partners? It's really being thought leaders into the future of what emerging technology looks like for the defense sector.
1: So, can you sort of quantify the ecosystem around SoCal Tech Bridge?
2: Well, I'll start with we have six strategic technology areas. And I say we didn't choose these areas, they chose us. Mm-hmm. It's about 5G enabled tech, not just 5G waveforms, not just 5G networks, not just a phone, right? Next is unmanned logistics, where air and ground assets that are self driving can do deliveries, whether it's deliveries mm-hmm. on a base or in your city or does it on the battlefield. And really changes how we think of logistics on the battlefield and the risk to life that comes with moving things in the future. Counterintrusion. Think security systems, sensor suites that do mobile edge compute and computing on the edge that are tied into cellular and really showing across all these threat vectors, not just a single ground perimeter but we bring in counter-drone, we bring in maritime. Our fourth area is advanced manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Then we get into energy resilience, so renewables and microgrids and electric fleets and charging infrastructure. And our final one is drone traffic management. And so we have strategic partners in each of these. We have partners and stakeholders across Department of Defense, and then we have equities that are in other agencies and even in industry for each of those as well.
1: For our listeners who may not be total experts on 5G, help us understand the significance of 5G and why it presents a potential security risk.
2: What we're trying to show people is that it's not about a waveform. It's not about just your cell phone working better or you downloading movies quickly. It's about this internet of things unlocked that's going to come into this ubiquitous network. And then we want it to be seamless. The key to understanding 5G is understanding that it's a 5G network. The foundation of that network is actually 4G LT. Mm-hmm. So we now have grown accustomed to having Wi-Fi in our homes. And then in our homes with Wi-Fi, now we have all these connected devices. What you and I are accustomed to doing as we walk around town and whether we download a song or we try to get on a Zoom on our phone or something, there is coverage and there's capability now. 5G is this high intensity capability that we want to surge into that network in key locations where we anticipate the need for that. (laughs) I hope that helps paint a picture of what 5G is doing and why, one, it's a great opportunity, but two, a lot of connection points, a lot of uh, potential vulnerabilities. And so we want to do it wisely and we do it wisely by doing it together.
1: Is 5G an area where the U.S. can maybe refresh or rejuvenate its traditional global alliances through partnerships matching up defense and research and companies? Or is the U.S. looking at new types of alliances? Do you see 5G changing the way alliance building is conducted?
2: Well, you know, I can speak from my personal experience. Mm -hmm. A little over a year and a half ago, I was in Germany. When we met with the U.S. consulate in Germany, the first thing they said is that they're speaking to their counterparts weekly in the German government about the threat to their infrastructure and who they allow to put in that infrastructure. Right. And so, you know, on a personal level, it was very clear that this is an international issue. Mm -hmm. This is an issue about our allies. And it's not just about us being secure in the U.S., but it is Mm -hmm. about our allies around the world recognizing the risks that are involved and intrinsic in a connected world. And so mm-hmm. we want front and center understanding how commercial networks are transforming mm-hmm. with 5G. We want to understand how they do that securely and effectively. And the only way you understand that complex world is by stepping into it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so important about what we do here at the Tech Bridge Naval X. We step into that world. Mm-hmm. We aren't just doing it in a lab at a research facility, we aren't just doing it in one off contracts. We're really trying to do it in a collaborative market.
1: All right. So a final question. What 5G application is going to blow our minds before the end of the year or, you know, before the end of next year? Let's say just within the foreseeable future, like how are our minds going to be blown by 5G in ways that we have maybe not fully appreciated yet?
2: Well, let me just point to what I'm so excited about when we've talked about 5G, but it's really about 5G enabled tech. And mm-hmm. we're doing connected vehicles. So we have unmanned vehicles, self-driving on the base today, doing package delivery. Mm-hmm. And then we're moving the gigabits of data mm-hmm. that are coming off that vehicle. We have to move that to the cloud. We're leveraging 5G for that. We have an energy communications pilot where we're allowing our energy and water ops center to reach through the cellular network to touch mm-hmm. their solar fields and actually that's curtail crazy. the energy that's coming <laughs> off. That's something that we're building out right now. We have so many capabilities into electric mobility. In June, we're we're holding an electric mobility symposium showing that renewable energy and microgrid and charging infrastructure mm-hmm. and electric and autonomous platforms that then go out and move people, they move goods, and they move power. All of that is here, it's ready. The markets need to be unlocked and the connectivity that you need for those types of capability. We believe Cellular does that. And so we're just seeing that it's a huge unlock to so many markets that we care about both here in the States and, you know, potentially keeping Marines out of harm's way on the battlefield. It's just a great opportunity. We're very excited about it.
1: Lieutenant Colonel Newell, I think the future is something is really something to be excited about. Thank you so much for making it happen.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. I really enjoyed it.
0: He's a really smart guy.
1: The conversation was unclassified. The U.S. military has taken a fully unclassified approach to 5G development. It's an ecosystem, and they want to be very clear, this is not top secret slash X-Files type stuff. Right. It's moving fast, though. It's I mean, it's exciting to see that approach in action. It's smart. Yeah. Specifically in 5G, too, where there's a, you know potential for a lot of secrecy and resistance and you know global alliances are evolving along those lines. I think that's fair to say.
0: That is fair to say. Let's move on.
1: Yes, to our science and tech headlines. First, John, maybe we should take this podcast to YouTube, because apparently that's where the listeners are. (laughs) (laughs) A Pew Telephone survey of U.S. adults found that 81% of them said they use YouTube. That's higher than Facebook at 69% and way higher than all the other social media platforms, which don't break 50%. Not only that, but YouTube is one of the few sites that's grown in the last couple of years, according to Pew. And more than half its users say they use it daily. A quick refresher, John, YouTube launched in 2005. Google bought it the following year, and it looks like that was a good move. What do you think?
0: It was obviously a spectacular move. Yeah. They're not deriving as much revenue as, you know, Wall Street analysts would like. But mm-hmm. News Items is written uh, accompanied by YouTube. I listen to uh, music from about one thirty in the morning till about 6.30 in the
1: morning. While you're writing News Items?
0: Yeah. So it, it commands five hours of my attention every day. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Moving on. A study conducted in Bangladesh has found that feeding malnourished children in a way that helps develop the microbiome, that's the community of gut bacteria we all carry around, led to more growth. 120 toddlers were fed either a standard supplement or a bacteria-enhancing mixture of chickpea, banana, soy, and peanut. The latter group gained beneficial microbes and also gained more weight despite eating fewer calories overall. As an immunologist not involved in the study, put it to the journal Science, quote, healthy children depend on a healthy microbiome. That is science being put to a good purpose, and we are fully on board with that.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. It really is great. Yeah. We cover this a lot at News Items, which if you want to subscribe, you can find by typing into Google News Items, John Ellis, Substack, those three words will retrieve the opportunity to subscribe to news items.
1: And you should subscribe for the deep intel.
0: And we should also say that Rebecca's site, Investible Universe, is, the Rebecca site, Investable Universe.
1: Global market of things.
0: Global market of things is terrific. I, I visit it every day, and I would you urge too. you to do so as well.
1: I'm surprised. You think Peter Thiel reads Investable Universe? You should ask I'm him when you interview him. <laughs> I'm hoping he does. John, I enjoyed talking to you today.
0: I enjoyed talking to you as always. So have a good weekend, Rebecca.
1: Thank you, you too.
0: Tomorrow, we should tell our listeners we are posting more from the interview with Jill Abramson that we did last week. It's terrific, and thanks very much for listening.
1: Yes, I second that wholeheartedly. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back on Monday with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then.
2: luxurious italian leather bags and so much more
1: plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns two percent of seniors reported using snapchat john
0: i don't believe that
1: somebody trolled pew seniors don't use snapchat come on